Well, friends, we definitely need the Lord every minute, every hour, and we might need him especially at this hour as we look to his word. We are in desperate need of his help so that we might understand it and so that we might love what is in it. And so let's go to the Lord and ask him for his help as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you in your grace and mercy and in your faithfulness have decided to adopt a sinful people like us. We are called now by your name. It's not because we deserve that. We certainly don't stand on our own merit or our own righteousness. We come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to ask you to be good to us and to be faithful again to us this morning as we look to your word. And so we pray that your spirit would come. We pray that you would work in me and in all of us that we might see you in your word, that we might see your righteousness and that we would see your faithfulness. We pray that we would see ourselves rightly in your word. We pray most of all that you would show us Christ in your word. Continue to work in us by your spirit, sustain our faith and make us more like Jesus, we pray. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to make this statement, and I don't mean it to come across badly. I mean to say it with humility. One of the problems in the evangelical church is that she tends to be way too triumphalistic. By that I mean even the evangelical church at times can tend to be too like happy clappy, like everything is good and we're just kind of on this continuous, uninterrupted, like upward trajectory towards greatness. That problem, that kind of happy clappy triumphalism that's common is part of the reason why people in the church with the best of intentions say unhelpful things and sometimes, frankly, stupid things in the face of suffering and difficulty. So real hurt and real genuine wrestling are often dismissed or maybe trivialized with platitudes in the church. Verses are slapped up on the fronts of refrigerators and catchy quotes are thrown around and we think that we've answered the problem of pain. Friends, this problem, this issue in the church demonstrates some ignorance, maybe a great deal of ignorance about the message of the Bible. The Bible is about God's plan of redemption accomplished through Jesus. Amen, somebody. We talk about that all the time. And... The Bible also reveals the clear pattern for God's people of suffering and then glory. There is real hope. There is, as the old hymn goes, there is a happy land that is waiting for the redeemed. 
and we will pass through the valley to get there. This is the story of God's people. And this is our story. It's important that we would see it and that we would hear it and be reminded of it again and again. And so we're going to be reminded of these realities today as we look to the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to the book of Micah, chapter 6. We are in the sixth of seven sermons through the minor prophet book of Micah. We will be looking today at verses 9 of chapter 6 all the way through verse 17 of chapter 7. Uh, And so next week we will conclude this series, God willing, with just the final three verses of Micah 7. As we've made our way through this wonderful book, we've been considering the, the two themes that are interwoven throughout it of judgment on God's people for their sin and at the same time, God's unswerving commitment to his plan of redemption. Judgment and redemption are not separate things in the book of Micah. They are interwoven together. The people have failed and thus they see and know trial and judgment and God is unswervingly faithful. He will redeem his own. So now that you've had a moment to flip or turn your Bibles on. We also will have the verses I trust up here on the screen as we typically do. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't sweat it. You'll be able to follow along with us just fine up here. Before we go any further, I want to read God's word for us beginning in Micah chapter six and verse nine. The voice of the Lord cries to the city and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri in all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. 
the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have four points for us today. Four points, that's it, a relatively simple outline. We will take them one at a time. Point number one, just giving it the heading, covenant curses. Covenant curses. So we're going to look at verses 9 through 16 briefly together from chapter 6 before we actually put our eyes on the verses. just want to make a few comments here. To make sense of the covenant curses that we see in our text today, it will help us, I think, to talk for just a moment about the covenantal framework of the Bible. So the Bible, as it's given to us, there are a series of covenants revealed within it. It begins in the beginning, in the garden, God makes man. He makes man uniquely in his image, and he makes a covenant with our first parents, primarily with Adam as the covenant head, as the representative of the entire human race. God tells Adam, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate it, live in it, eat of everything that's in it, but you shall not eat of that one tree. If you obey this, it will go well. If you transgress, you will surely die. We all know in Genesis chapter 3 that that covenant that God made with Adam was broken. It was violated. And so at that moment, the worst moment in history, God, because he is a redeemer and gracious and merciful, made a promise of redemption. He instituted what we call the covenant of grace that began in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when he promised, like we confessed earlier, to send one, the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head, the great enemy, Satan, the enemy of God's people. So beginning there, throughout the rest of the scripture, we see this unfolding of the covenant of grace and God accomplishing that plan of redemption that he promised. Underneath that 
covenant of grace, we know that God made a covenant with Noah, that he would not destroy the earth again like he had in the flood. He made a covenant with Abraham, where he promised to make out of Abraham a great nation. Every people on the earth will be blessed through you. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. We know that God also underneath the covenant of grace made a covenant with Moses, with the people through Moses, maybe more precisely, which is where he gave the law. And then he also made a covenant with David, telling David that there would come one from his line who would reign in righteousness on the throne of David forever. And then we know from Scripture that that covenant of grace found its fulfillment and was accomplished through the coming of Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He did it and accomplished everything that was required to redeem God's people. We'll think more about that piece particularly later on. But a big question for us is we're going to look at just some of the ways that even in verses 9 through 16, God is declaring curses upon his people. We have to ask this question, why did God give the law? Why did God give the law through Moses? Telling the people, this is my standard. This is good. This is upright. These things are wicked. Why did he do that? Three reasons that I think are very helpful for us that God gave the law. The first reason that God gave the law was to show his people their sin and to drive them outside of themselves to their Savior. So you might be thinking, okay, well, how does that work, Justin, before Jesus came? If the law was meant to show us our sin and drive us to Christ, how was that working before Christ came to earth? It's a good question. Well, the sacrificial system that was instituted under the law pointed to the Christ, the Messiah who would come to atone for his people's sin. The law itself pointed to the Christ who would come and fulfill the law perfectly in the place of his people. So as the people are confronted day after day after day with their inability to live up to God's standard, they were driven practically in Israel to the sacrificial system. Atonement had to be made. I can't atone for my sin. Atonement has to be made. And as they were confronted over and over again with their failure to meet the law, they were pointed to the promised one, the seed of Abraham, the Christ, who would come and keep the law so that they might be redeemed. Underneath the law, it's important for us to realize that there is punishment for breaking it. There are curses that God reveals for breaking the law. The only hope for God's people is Messiah. So that's the first reason God gave the law. The second reason that God gave the law was simply to restrain human evil. So in the law, right and wrong are established. Penalties for breaking the law are established. The law and its punishments, therefore, act as a deterrent to evil. That's the second reason God gave the law. The third reason that God gave the law is to be the guide for his people, the perfect guide for living. Here is what's good for you. Here is what's bad for you. These things will produce flourishing. They please me. So those categories are helpful 
First use, show us our sin, drive us to the Savior. Second use, restrain evil. Third use, perfect guide for living. So an essential piece, friends, of the usefulness of the law as God intended it was the curses that came with breaking it. Does that make sense? The curses that came with breaking the law were an essential piece of how God intended it to work amongst his people. So Israel, as we heard our brother read from Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen's famous sermon that he preaches to an assembly of Israelites, to Jews, before he's executed for what he said. He tells a beautiful rendering, beautiful on the one hand, quite not flattering on the other in terms of the Israelites themselves. He tells the history of God's people, their failure, and how God, through all that, kept staying in it with them to redeem them and save them. But Israel would over and over again break the law. And so they would bear the curses that came with breaking that law. We see this quite clearly in our text today. God is aiming to do good to his people in allowing and ordaining that they would bear the consequences of breaking his law. This was about their redemption. From a redemptive historical perspective, God, in cursing his people for breaking the law, was continuing to show them the gravity of their sin. Your sin is a big deal. Your sin will ruin you eternally. He was showing them that through these curses. He was continuing to teach them their utter inability to live up to his standard. You do not have hope in yourself. And he was continuing in cursing them for their disobedience to drive them outside of themselves to look to Messiah as their only hope for salvation. So put your eyes on verses 9, 10, 11, 12. We have God again, as he's done several times in the book of Micah, assessing the situation in Israel. It's not good. You can see that there is rampant wickedness amongst God's people. There is a lack of justice. There is deceit. There's a lot of lying. There is violence. All of those things are described, especially in verses 10, 11, and 12. As we put our eyes now on verse 13, therefore, God says, because of the wickedness that exists amongst you and In your midst, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You have sinned. I am making you desolate, continuing to teach you that your sin is a big deal, continuing to teach you that you do not measure up, continuing to teach you that what you need is a righteousness outside of you. You need a savior. Then in verse 14, the Lord continues these Curses become more obvious here. Life is not going to go well for Israel. You shall eat, but you won't be satisfied. You'll be hungry. You'll be wanting. You will put away. You will seek to save. You will aim to be frugal. You will aim to store things up, but you'll preserve nothing. And what you do manage to save, he says, I will give to the sword. Other people that aren't you, namely like pagans, will take it from you. You will sow, but you won't reap a harvest. You will tread olives, but you won't have the oil. You'll do the work, you won't bear the fruit. You will tread grapes, but you'll have no wine. 
This is because, verse 16, the people have acted wickedly. The two names that are dropped right here in the first half of verse 16 are kind of a big deal in Israel's history. You have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels. Those two men are arguably the two most wicked kings in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Those men are upheld as a standard of debauchery and wickedness. And so this is what the Lord is saying. You have acted like that. As bad as it's ever been, as bad as it can be amongst my people is what you've done. And because of that, I will make you a desolation. I'm going to make you a byword amongst the nations. So again, God is using his law and the curses that come with it to continue to teach his people. He's not abandoning them. Let's not misunderstand. Him causing, allowing, ordaining this, the cursing, is actually him staying in it with his people because he is faithful to redeem them. Abandoning them would be to just leave them in their sin and allow them to just kind of happily exist there. Point number two. If the first point was covenant curses, the second point is Israel's misery. Israel's misery. We're going to continue to think about the fact that things were just bad in Israel. Put your eyes on verse one of chapter seven. Woe is me. This is the prophet speaking on behalf of God's people. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster. So I'm I'm like a vine dresser trying to find grapes after the harvest. There's nothing. The cupboard is bare. There's no fruit left. I want a first ripe fig, but it's not there. Verses two and three, we see that the godly has perished from the earth. There are no upright people at all. Everyone is violent and seeks to harm his neighbor. They lie in wait for blood. The only thing they're good at, we see in verse 3, is to do evil. They're good at one thing. They're good at doing evil. Those in power we see too are corrupt. The prince and the judge, they ask for a bribe. Those who are supposed to be in authority and wielding that well are corrupt. They do not lead. They do not judge. They do not govern in an upright way at all. Verse 4 and 5, we see it just continues. The description. The best of men is compared to briars and thorns. Like Biblically, that's a pretty rich image, right? I mean, when the curse came, rather than good plants being cultivated out of the earth, as Adam would work it, as we work it, what would come, God said? Thorns and thistles. It's not a good image. So the best of men is compared to briars and thorns. Micah says, the day of your watchmen, the day of your prophets, the judgment that's been predicted, it's come. Your punishment has come upon us. And there's confusion every place. Verses five and six, it gets worse. No one can be trusted. Put no trust in your neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Then... Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. You can't trust your spouse. We're also going to see you can't trust your kids either. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. 
Friends, this is the fruit of breaking God's law. It's a literal breakdown. It's a meltdown at every level of society. Neighbor, spouse, kids, society writ large, all the way down to the home. It's a meltdown amongst God's people, right? This is a big deal. Verse 7, though. Micah says this, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So at this point, we see Micah speaking for the redeemed. He is confident that God will act. He is confident that God will act savingly. And so here I want to make an important observation. So this is all underneath point two for the note takers in the room, but this is an observation that could kind of stand on its own. We thought about this some a few weeks ago. We're going to think about it again because it's really important for our lives. Here's the observation. Micah sees God's salvation lying beyond the judgment that he is witnessing and living in. Micah sees God's salvation lying beyond the judgment that he is witnessing, seeing all around him, and living in. This is, friends, this is our experience too. This is very similar. These words of Micah here in chapter 7 and verse 7 are similar to what Jeremiah writes in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. In Jeremiah's context, it's over a century later, after Micah's lifetime. Jeremiah is prophesying from the holy city, Jerusalem, in the aftermath of the Babylonian siege. The holy city has been racked and ruined and destroyed by an enemy. God's people have been exiled. In the midst of the carnage, the carnage that includes mothers eating their children and cannibalism and all these things within the walls of the holy city. Jeremiah is lamenting. He's weeping his eyes out. He's talking about wormwood and gall and all these terrible images of suffering and disaster and ruin. And then he writes this. Out of seemingly nowhere, Lamentations 3.21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That's what Jeremiah wrote. In Micah's context, things are also really bad. They're bad amongst the people of God. Curses and judgment have come and misery is the order of the day. And in the midst of that, Micah says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So this might be obvious to you, but it's important for us to note it. Micah's hope, and we could also say along with that, Jeremiah's hope, is not found in anything circumstantial. How do we know that? It's because their circumstances are terrible. It's really bad. The hope that they have is not found 
in anything related to their circumstances. So how about you as you sit here today? How's it going? You know, we say this sometimes, but maybe, maybe you're on a winning streak and you've had a great week. As we love to say, you know, every time you pull the lever, it's trip sevens, like you just couldn't be doing better. Maybe that's you today. Or maybe you've come in here at the tail end of one of the hardest weeks that you've ever lived through. Or maybe somewhere in between. But as one of the pastors here at CBC, I'm aware of a number of the circumstantial trials that exist in this church. This isn't a large, large church, right? I mean, we're a mega church compared to when we started. But this is not a huge assembly of people. And there are real trials here. A number of them. I was thinking in my sermon prep. Cancer, Lyme disease, chronic pain, depression, anxiety, difficulty in marriage, strife in the home, difficulty with children, loneliness, childlessness, the loss of a job, the inability to find a job, a highly stressful and taxing job, financial stress, Death of people you love. Those things are real. They're hard. We will, let's be, let's be clear. We will enjoy good things in this life. We do enjoy good things in this life. That's because God is good. And that's because God is gracious and he's kind. And that even though the world is fallen, there is still residual good in it. So we will enjoy good things and we should enjoy good things that come to us from the hand of God. And we will endure difficult, even at times terrible things. Friends, the hope of the redeemed is never in this life. We say that a lot. We think like that a lot. You know, we talk about heaven, but then we tend to live in such an earthbound way. The hope of the redeemed is not in this life. Our ultimate hope is in what God has promised to do, not circumstantially in our lives on earth. Our ultimate hope is what is in what God has promised to do eternally. The reason I'm saying this is because think about the prophet Micah's words. He's in the midst of wreckage and disaster and ruin amongst the people of God. And he's looking beyond that. He's looking through that to say, I know who God is. I know what he's promised. I know he will save. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. A wrong conclusion to draw from those verses is that suffering is easy. So sometimes in the church that happens. We quote Romans 8.18 or 2 Corinthians 4.17 or Romans 8.28 in the midst of really horrible things. And it's like, it's light and momentary, bro. You know, it's going to be good and heaven, or he works all things for good, you're, you're okay, right? Like that helps, didn't it? You know, in the midst of heartache and disaster. So a wrong conclusion to draw from biblical witness telling us 
that we are experiencing things that are hard right now, but it's not worth comparing to what's coming. The wrong conclusion to draw is that suffering is easy. It's not. Another wrong conclusion to draw from verses like I've cited is that suffering in and of itself is good. It's not. Suffering is a result of sin. Those verses, Romans 8, 18, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, are not statements about the ease or the insignificance of suffering. They are statements about how awesome the glory is that's coming. There's a huge difference. The point of the Apostle Paul is not that what you're going through is trivial. The point of the Apostle Paul is that like on your worst day, when your heart is breaking, you need to know that the hope that you have in Christ is greater than you've ever imagined. What's coming is so good you can't even comprehend it. And so therefore, relatively speaking, what you're going through is light and momentary. It speaks to the greatness and the glory, the joy, the peace that awaits. So friends, let me be clear. It is not good, it is wrong, and it is sinful to wallow in our suffering. I think we've got that. To wallow in our suffering is bad. It's not okay. And at the same time, we should not trivialize or dismiss suffering either. Lament is biblical. Pick up the book and read it. Lament is all through these pages. Our posture is one where we trust Christ. We live a life of faith in God and his promises. We look through the suffering. We lift our eyes from the immediate horizon to the wonderful promises of God like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's what we look to. The new heavens and a new earth coming. Those who know God will be there. You don't deserve to be there. I don't deserve to be there. That's why I read all the way to Revelation 21.6. For the thirsty, I will give to them from the water of life without payment. It's free and it's done in Christ. This is the perspective of the redeemed through history. That we look through suffering to glory. And we know that glory is guaranteed to us, not because we're faithful, but because God is faithful. Point number three. Giving point number three the heading, God the Redeemer. 
God the Redeemer. We're going to look at verses 8 to 10 together for a moment in chapter 7. Here again, the prophet will speak on behalf of God's people, on behalf of the redeemed in particular. In verse 8, we see that the enemies of God's people rejoice over their falling and their failing. That was happening then, it happens now. The world rejoices as the church trips all over itself, right? They taunt God's people. Where is the Lord your God? Is he really going to save you? Verse 10, you see that. My enemy used to taunt me with these words. Where is God? He's not really going to save you. So here's the reality, friends. Here's what the redeemed understand. Verse 8. The redeemed understand that we have fallen in sin. See that. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. But the fall is acknowledged. The acknowledgement of sitting in darkness. This is like the image of a dungeon or a prison. I sit in darkness. But in that darkness, the light of the Lord's salvation shines through. So when I fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Verse 9. This is, verse 9 is remarkable. We're going to think about this and unpack it more in a moment. The redeemed are saying, we know that we suffer because of sin. And because we live in a world that is racked with sin, we rightly in that sense bear the indignation of God. You see that in the text. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Then these remarkable words in the second half of verse nine, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light I shall look upon his vindication. Then we see that shame will cover the enemies of God. But this whole business of I'm going to bear the indignation of God because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He's going to bring me into the light and I'll see his vindication. Like, Hit the stop button for a moment. Like alarm bells should be going off, right? Like how does that make sense? This is how you should read your Bible, okay? Like when you see something like that, the immediate thought should be like, okay, how in the world is that true? Important observation. This is the second one of those, okay? So this is all under point three. Another important observation. None of this in particular, verses eight through 10, None of this makes any sense apart from Jesus. God himself will be my advocate, is what the redeemed are saying. We will be brought out into the light and we will look upon the Lord's vindication. The Lord and his righteousness will be vindicated in the freeing of the prisoner and in the shaming of the enemy. Okay. Apart from Christ, this is critical that we know this and own this and embrace it. Apart from Christ, for God to save a people like us would compromise his righteousness. It would not vindicate it, right? God himself will be my advocate. Wait, what? How? How could he advocate for a wretch like you or me? We will be brought out into the light as though that's a good thing. How is that possible? 
That thought of everything you've ever done being brought in, out into the light, I trust, terrifies everybody in this room with a pulse. If people knew what's going on in my heart or in my mind, it would be a disaster. And the prophet is saying that everything's going to be brought to light and it's going to go well for the redeemed. How? The answer, this has already been said, there's only one. The only way that makes sense at all is through Christ. Because of what? God's righteous requirements. We talk about these things regularly. The righteous requirements of God, sinlessness, never violating a single command of his perfect law. That's required. But then also, not only the not violating peace, but also the keeping and doing of every single command that he's ever given perfectly. So given, I don't think I need to argue this, given that we've got none of that, we've got nothing to stand on, it's very clear that atonement and satisfaction had to be made for our sin, that law-breaking part. For verses 8 to 10 to make any sense, my law-breaking had to be dealt with. It had to be satisfied, had to be paid for. But then also for verses 8 to 10 to make any sense, the law had to be kept for me so that I can say somehow my sin, it's as though I've never sinned and it is as though I have perfectly kept the law. Real talk. We have broken all of God's commands. We've never really kept a single one of them at the heart level, ever. We still sin. People in here today, trusting Christ, still sin. Every one of you, myself included. We still struggle with and against our corruption. And the gospel is this. The good news is this. Completely by faith, apart from anything that you ever have done or could do, completely by faith, we are counted with the satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. Just like we all fell in Adam as the first covenant head, we all now in Christ as the other great covenant head are counted with all of his merit. Everything that he has done is counted to me as though I have done it. His death that he died under the law that he didn't deserve he didn't need to die for his own sins. He didn't have any. But he, as a truly human being, died under the law. And by faith, I in him died. So that penalty is paid and it's over. So now, in light of that truth, that by trusting in Christ, that's my new reality, the words of verses 8 to 10 make sense. They make sense. Now the language of God being our advocate makes sense. It sounds like John. It sounds like Paul. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Or this one. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It makes sense of Micah chapter 7. In Christ alone we stand. Through Christ alone is God vindicated in his work of redemption. Because when you see that language of he will bring me out into the light, I will look upon his vindication. That's not just talking about your vindication. That's talking about God's vindication in his work of redemption. The fact that he is righteous and good and gracious and holy. God is vindicated and he saves in a way that does not compromise his righteousness at all. It's amazing. The gospel is remarkable. Point four, this is how we're going to land the plane today. So this kind of serves as point four and our conclusion. Here's the heading. God's people restored and exalted. God's people restored and exalted. So these are themes that we've considered throughout our time in Micah. I don't feel the need to labor them at length today, but I'll just draw your attention to kind of clumps of these verses in verses 11 through 17. In 11 through 13, we see that God's people are restored. Their place, their position, their status is restored. The nations will come to the city of God. The rest of the earth will now be desolate, though, because of their own sin. Verse 14, we get this image again of God being the shepherd of his people, which we've thought about several times together. The shepherding image through Micah is prevalent, that the Lord is the shepherd of his people, and Jesus in particular is the fulfillment of that as our good shepherd. And then in verses 15 through 17, we see that the nations will be humbled and put to shame. So whereas the nations were taunting God's people, whereas the nations were plundering God's people, the nations now, that role is reversed, and the nations are put to shame. They will fear the Lord, and they will actually fear the people of God. It's remarkable. God's people, we read finally, will be exalted in triumph. So I just want to talk with you for a moment and then I want to leave you with some Bible. The church, wholesale, like church universal, and maybe even in particular a small, not that long ago planted church like ours, often looks very weak in the eyes of the world. The church at times can even look ridiculous in the eyes of the world. The church often seems irrelevant, right, in the eyes of the world. Who cares? I doubt that there are many people in Metro Asheville who really care at all what's happening in this room right now. So there's that part. But then there's the reality of the difficulty that we all face the trials that we endure, some of those are catastrophic. Some of those are just the daily grind. So we're acquainted with suffering and difficulty. So we are an interesting people. I don't know if you've thought about that. We're an interesting people. We do this thing that the world doesn't care about. We gather like this. We trust Christ who the world has no regard for. We seem irrelevant. We look weak. And at the same time, it's not clearly bringing like temporal blessing. Like, What in the world are we doing? That's a question 
that many would ask us legitimately, what do you do that for? So I want to leave you with just a few thoughts from Hebrews chapter 11. If you want to turn, I didn't prepare Bruce for this, so brother, don't even worry. If you want to turn to Hebrews 11, you can. You really don't need to. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 17. I'm just going to basically make flyover comments and then read a portion of it. Like, what do we make of this? Why do we do what we do? In Hebrews chapter 11, famously, the writer begins to commend certain individuals for faith. They trust God. They believe the promises of God. And the writer even says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Right? So then he goes on to commend certain people from Abel on through Abraham and Sarah for their faith. Not their upright lives, but their faith. And then this in verses 13 and following. I would prefer you maybe just listen, but if you're the kind of person that wants to look at it, I leave it to you. Talking about these people who had faith and are commended for faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Amen. God has prepared for us a city. That, in short, realized through Christ is why we're here. It's why we do what we do. Judgment. These people didn't look great in temporal terms. Judgment and then redemption. Exile and then restoration. Suffering and then glory. In Christ, that's our story. But it ends in that city that God has prepared for all those who trust his son. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, one of the things that I trust we all love about your word is that it's really honest. It's not silent on really hard things. We thank you so much for the revelation that you have given us that our lives will look like your people's lives have always looked, that we will know difficulty, that we will often look weak and foolish, but that you have prepared a place for us and that you have made it possible through your son that we would dwell with you. We pray that as we encounter life tomorrow and on Tuesday and on Thursday and the days after that, should you give them to us, that we would look through the immediate circumstances of our lives to Christ and that we would look to the promises that you have made to us in him. We pray that you would give us hope, that you would give us rest and joy as we anticipate the glory that you have set before us. We pray that we would love each other really well in the midst of difficult days. We pray for your help by your spirit in all of these things. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.